Okay, let's go ahead and dive in. We're actually going to be spending two weeks in the book of Haggai, and some people call it Haggai. Uh, I'm going to call it Haggai. Honestly, there's no telling what may come out of my mouth as we work through this book, but I'm going to try to go with Haggai. It's uh, in the, obviously, it's in the Old Testament. If you don't know where it is, because probably most of you may not have started your day off in a quiet time in this book, if you found Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and work your way back, two books, you'll find it. So you'll have Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. So it's the third to the last book in the Old Testament. And actually, outside of Obadiah, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only 38 verses over two chapters, but it is full of some really, really good stuff that we're going to get into today, and I think you're going to just thoroughly enjoy it. So if you can go ahead and turn there, I am not going to have the scripture on the screen uh, from Haggai. I want you all to use your Bibles and or your apps um, for that, but I will have other scriptures on the screen as we work through it uh, today. R.A. Torrey, he was a pastor in the, the late 1800s, early 1900s. He wrote a classic book called How to Pray. And towards the end of this book, he starts expressing the need for that culture at that time here in America, the need for revival. And to convince his readers of this need for revival, he basically says, he starts writing about the church. And he says, I want you to look at what's really happening around you right now. Look at what's going on. And as a result... I want you to see why we need revival. And I want to read you just a couple of paragraphs from, from that book, because interestingly enough, this was written, written you know, in the late 1800s, and you could probably almost apply it in many ways to us today. It says, look at the spiritual state of the church. Worldliness is rampant among church members. Many church members are as eager as any in the rush to get rich. They use the methods of the world and the accumulation of wealth, and they hold just as fast to it as when they gotten it. Prayerlessness abounds among church members on every hand. Someone has said that Christians on average do not spend more than five minutes a day in prayer. Neglect of the word of God goes hand in hand with neglect of prayer to God. Very many Christians spend twice as much time every day wallowing through the more of the daily newspapers as they do bathing in the cleansing laver of God's holy word. How many Christians average an hour a day spent in Bible study? Along with neglect of prayer and neglect of the word of God goes lack of generosity the churches are rapidly increasing in wealth, but the treasuries of the missionary societies are empty. Then there is the increasing disregard for the Lord's Day. It is fast becoming a day of worldly pleasure instead of a day of holy service. And then he goes down to conclude that section of the book, and he says, How small a proportion of our membership has really entered into fellowship with Jesus Christ and his burden for souls. How small a proportion of our membership has really entered into fellowship with Jesus Christ in his burden for souls. He was essentially saying at that time, God is no longer the priority in the church. And there is a desperate need to return to him. And so he went through this so the churches at that time could say, look around, look at what's going on. Look at the neglect of God's word and everything else. And in Haggai, we're going to see something very similar. God is taking Haggai. And he's sending them to the Israelites because they had failed to make God the priority in their lives. They had let things get in the way. And Haggai was sent to them to challenge them to return to God. And as we study this book over the next two weeks, we're going to see just a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty, his hand on the Israelites despite their disobedience, and then the blessings that come 
from obeying God and putting Him first. And that's why I've titled this service, this sermon series, The Joy of Obedience. But before we dive, dive into Haggai, first, we've got to kind of get everybody on the same page as to what is going on. How do we get to this point with the Israelites, and who are we talking about? So I've tried to put together a little little timeline for everybody uh, to work through this. So those of you that this is give you horrors of going back to history class when you were in college or high school, I apologize. But uh, I do want to just kind of work through this timeline to kind of set the stage of what we're going to be looking at in Haggai. So let's start in 605 BC. So this is Jeremiah prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. And he actually does it in Jeremiah 25, 8 through 9 and verses 11. Let's just read those. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. And then in verse 11, he says, this whole land shall become a ruin a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. I want you to hold that 70 years for a second. So he prophesies the destruction, and this is the destruction of the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom back in the 700s had already been exiled. They were taken over by Assyria. So this is the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. They were obviously the line of David through there. So Jeremiah prophesies the destruction of the southern kingdom. 70 years. Now, sure enough, 586 BC, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed by the Babylonians and they're exiled to Babylon. Second Chronicles 36 kind of details all of that out for us. So Jeremiah's prophecy is fulfilled within 20 years that happens. Then fast forward about 50 years, roughly. There's a ruler that is raised up in Persia, Cyrus the Great. That comes in and conquers Babylon. And interestingly enough, Cyrus is an interesting character in the Bible. Character, he's a person, I guess he's not a character. But uh, he was predicted, the Persian Empire was predicted to capture Babylon. Isaiah 41 talks about this. So the Babylonian Empire basically came in, wrecked havoc on the Israelites, and then the Persian Empire comes up and destroys the Babylonian Empire. And Isaiah, actually, in chapter 45 of his book, prophesies about Cyrus being raised up. Uh, Actually, this one verse I think was pretty neat. It says, I have stirred him up, talking about Cyrus, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city, going to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, and set my exiles free. And here's the kicker. Not for price or reward. This king who controls that empire is going to do all this without us having to pay a thing to do that. Not for price or reward. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Some versions may say Lord Almighty. Some may say Lord of armies. He controls the heavenly armies, the earthly armies. He is sovereign. That's why he's going to do it without price or reward. Another fascinating fact about this, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he was writing about Cyrus. So Cyrus is living and he can read the prophecies uh, that were made about him. And he said that One day Cyrus is reading those prophecies and was so impressed by it that he eagerly sought to fulfill what was prophesied about him. Would that not be strange to be sitting there, oh, that's God talking about me. Here, I'll go do that. And uh, and and so God was obviously going to work in his life, and then God also takes him 
and makes him desire to want to do those things. So not only is that God has already had to put a little 70-year limit on the exile, but he's also raising up this pagan ruler to do his deal. And then, sure enough, or as we used to say in my family, show enough, show enough in 538 B.C., Cyrus issues a decree for the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Ezra 1, 1 through 2 kind of documents that for those that may want to refer back to that later because we don't have time to hit all these verses. Now, for you math wizards in the room, you look at that and you're like, okay, Kevin, um, you said Jeremiah prophesied 70 years. So where in the world is 70 years in here? I got 586 B.C. That's when they were... When things were destroyed and they were exiled, I got 538 B.C. is when he issues a decree for them to return. So just to put anyone at ease who's struggling with that right now, probably I may be the only one that struggled with that. Y'all may be good, but it's right here. 605 B.C., interestingly enough, they were actually four exiles of the Israelites to Babylon. And the first occurred in 605 B.C. If you were to go in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his buddies were exiled in 605 B.C. That was the first exile. Then there was another one, I believe, in like 597. There was this one in 586. And some even say there was another one in 582. Then you come all the way down here at the bottom, the 538. These dates are approximate dates. Uh, different scholars have different views on it. So they most believe this, this decree for the Israelites' return happened somewhere between 538 and 535. And so if you take the one side, the 535, take it to 605, do the little subtraction, you get 70 years. So God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful. Amen. And the neat thing about it is some people say that it could be just rounding. Sometimes rounding is used in Scripture. I think Psalm 90.10 as an example of rounding. So even if it was 68, 67 years rounded, 70 years, that would work too. So don't let anyone throw you off with the 70 years there that Jeremiah prophesied early on. Now, I don't want to pause right here because I don't want us to miss this because it's so easy to kind of just sit there and just read these dates and just flip them off and let's move on to Haggai. But there's something really beautiful in what God has done here with the Israelites because you remember, they were just awful to God. I mean, they disobeyed him. God sent prophet after prophet. They refused to submit to his word and what he was saying to do. And unfortunately, and because of that, God allowed them to be punished. And they were punished pretty ruthlessly. The Babylonians just wiped them out and then took them out of their city to Babylon. But through all of that, and despite their disobedience, God was faithful to his promises to them. Despite all of that. And it's just really cool to kind of think about it. He, when he comes in there and they wipe them out and they exile them, he basically says, yeah, you're going to have to go through your punishment. Seventy years is a long time, but I'm putting an end on it. Seventy years. And you watch me. It'll end in 70 years. He raises up a king, a pagan ruler, as we just looked at, that's going to basically decree them to go back and build that temple. He raises up a pagan, prophesied about it, and did it. And then, to just put justice where it needed to be, he raises up the Persian Empire to inflict justice on the Babylonian Empire that inflicted on his people. And you just look at that, and you think about this generation of Israelites in that 70-year period, for those that were able to live that entire time, they got to experience God's sovereignty in a cool, cool way. Because they got to see the God who controls the who 
He controlled Persia and King Cyrus, the God that controls the when, the 70 years, and the God that controls the how. I'm going to do it without you having to pay a dime. Actually, I'm going to get things given to you. He was the God who controls the who, the when, and the how. And that's what they got to experience. And you know what's cool about that? Is that because God never forgot his promises to the Israelites, we can always take comfort in looking at that scripture and think, for those of us that call him Lord, he never forgets his promises to us at all. And that is so, so powerful when you just really think about that and let that sink in a little bit. He never forgets his promises. No matter what we've done, no matter how far we may stray, and we're all in this together, we stray from his word as believers at times. We get off track. We allow things to get in the way. And it, no matter what we've done, maybe if we messed up our marriage or maybe not have led our home like we should or maybe been dishonest in business dealings or just become incredibly selfish or just, it could go on and on. All these things we fall our, see ourselves falling into when we turn back to God and ask for his forgiveness and repent from that sin, he's still faithful to his promises to us. He will restore you when you return to him. And that's just such a beautiful thing. And I love this verse here from Psalm 102, 2 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. And then this is, this is beautiful who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. No matter what we've done and when we stray, he can redeem our life from the pit and crown us with steadfast love and mercy. And what an encouragement for us as believers to know that when we fail, we can come back. Because we've all failed. We've all, we've all failed. But also, what an encouragement that is to the person that doesn't know Jesus. Um, to think there's this God out there that loves you so much. And we sit here on this side of the New Testament, and we see this love expanded even further through Jesus Christ. And what David did such a beautiful job preaching last week about how Jesus came, lived that perfect life, died, was buried, paid the penalty for our sins by going to the grave. And God raised him from the grave three days later so that we can have the hope of eternal life. And I tell you, when you come to Jesus, it's, not, it's easy to bring him into your life based on what Scripture says, but living it out can be difficult. And as David always taught us, and I thought he did a superb job, you have to count the cost of following Jesus. Absolutely. But what a beautiful thing to know that if I turn my life to Jesus and I confess my sins and repent of them and say, I'm going to make you number one in my life, you get access to this God this God of the who, the when, and the how controls all that. And that's the God that we can serve on a daily basis. Awesome, awesome thing just to kind of just package that. The God that controls the who, the when, and the how is faithful to his promises. Then the last thing, well, two more things here on the timeline. So in 536 B.C., the temple building begins, but then it quickly ceases. And why did it cease? Ezra 4, 4 and 5, and 24. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build. This is all the people that were in the land when they came back, and bribed counselors, government officials, against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, and even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. There was another king in between those two. And then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
And then here comes Haggai in 520 B.C. You'll notice there's a 16-year gap right there between them building, starting the temple, and them halting. And they didn't do anything for 16 years. They simply failed to obey what God had asked them to do. They just simply did that. And therefore, they were reaping the consequences of their disobedience. So Haggai comes in the picture. And interestingly enough, the book of Haggai, only four months period of time right there. And he delivers six messages over four months. And through these six messages, we find five powerful reminders. These, these aren't, aren't rocket science, but they're five powerful reminders about God's obedience, about being obedient to God. Simple reminders for us. And we'll work through the first two today, and then we'll hit the last three next week. The first one is, God requires our complete obedience. God requires our complete obedience. I want you to go ahead and look at Haggai. I'm going to read the first 11 verses here, and I'm going to pause in the first two just to highlight a couple of things as we work through it. In the second year of Darius the king, and I'm reading from the ESV version, uh, if you, for anyone that wants to know that. Uh, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So these are the leaders, the governor, the high priest. These are the leaders of the people. So God sends Haggai to them first because they're the ones that are responsible for this remnant here. So he comes to them first. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. There's that term again that we saw back in Isaiah. The Lord of hosts highlights the Lord as the ruler of the heavenly armies. Again, you should, some versions may have Lord of armies. Some may have Lord Almighty. The God who controls the who, the when, and the how right there. And interesting enough, Lord of hosts is going to occur 14 times in these 38 verses. And so it's going to, you're going to see this as a repeating phrase over and over. And only in Malachi is this term used more. So 14 times, Lord of hosts. And I tell you, that, those words right there, because they had stopped building, because out of fear, those words right there, I am the Lord of the heavenly and earthly armies, sent immediate statement to them about who they need to fear. Immediate statement to, to the Israelites. On in verse 2. These people, doesn't say my people, these people, because they're out of fellowship with God. The Lord of hosts says, these people say the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Even though it's been 15 years, they've been sitting on their duffs, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then we'll pick up in verse 3 and go to 11. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, there it is again, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but, you're, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. That's pretty strong. I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and in all their labors. Pretty strong words there. But the issue here before them is very clear. They were saying, hey, the time is not right. The time's not right for us to go rebuild this temple. We've got other things. We've got other priorities. And then God lays it out there for them. Is it a time for you to, verse 4, is it a time for you to dwell yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? And then in verse 9, why declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, why each of you busies himself with his own house? They were focused on themselves, focused on their comforts, not focused on what God had asked them to do. And as a result, he sends Haggai in there and says, hey, consider your ways. I mean, he says it there in verse 5. He says it again in verse 7. Consider your ways. Some of your verses may say, give careful thought to your ways. The, the New Living Translation, I like how it's worded. It says, look at what's happening to you. Look at what is going on around you. And it's not going well. As we look in those verses, I mean, verse 6, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You, enough, you drink, but you never have enough to fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. And then in verse 9, you look for much, and behold, it came to little. And what you brought home, I blew it away. And then in verse 10, he talks about all the impact on the land. I mean, no matter what they tried to do, they couldn't get ahead. Things were just unraveling for them over and over. And that's the results of their disobedience and God's hand of discipline on them. And that's why Haggai had to come in to show that to them. And I think it's good for us just to kind of pause there and think, all this stuff was happening to them. But yet God still had to send a prophet to show them what was going on. And it makes you wonder, had they struggled so long because of their disobedience that this was just a way of life for them? They didn't even realize this was God's disciplined hand on them? Had they struggled so long like that? And I tell you, that is a reflection question for us. Could we get so comfortable in our disobedience that we fail to realize God's hand of discipline on us? We just start thinking that's a way of life, that's just the way things are. Could we get to that point? Absolutely. The Israelites are no better than we are. We're in the same boat. We absolutely can. And it's a much-needed cause, I think, for all of us just to pause and think about that. You know, and I think about how many of us, I'm sure, I don't say everybody does this, but, you know, we, we go annually, most of us, to a doctor for him to check out our bodies and kind of give us a little evaluation of how we're doing um, health-wise. When I go see my doctor, he tells me certain things that I should do and I shouldn't do. And then as I leave there, I know I've got another year and Krispy Kreme donuts at some point in that year become very attractive to me, um, <laughs> especially the, the chocolate top with the white cream filling in the middle. Not, not the yellow stuff that goes in there, the yellow custard ones, but the white cream filling ones. And, and I share that because in case anyone feels led to bless me, you will know. And give me an opportunity to talk to my doctor the next year about it. No. So 
I'll be tempted to go have those donuts. I will be tempted to drive through Chick-fil-A and get that chicken biscuit. Greasy chicken biscuit. Uh, just love it. I could do that. Sinner. That's right. Sinner. Absolutely. It's Christian chicken, right? That's what they call it. So, uh, but no. So I will, be, I will tend to drift in that direction. And there's other things. And then I will try to move back before my appointment and try to eat a little healthier. And hopefully things will check out okay. But that doesn't always happen. And then I go back and get the evaluation. Kevin, here's the things we needed to work on going forward. And, you know, we do that, and I joke about that, but do we ever do that about our spiritual lives? You know, do we ever kind of just sit down, I don't say an annual, maybe we need to do it more often than that, quarterly, monthly, daily, I don't know. Do we ever just sit there and open up our Bibles and consider our ways and take inventory of what's going on? Or just sit there and get before God, honestly, and say, hey, am I completely following you and making you the priority? Yeah. Because we all have this tendency to drift. I think it's Hebrews 2, 1, I think, says, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. It was real for them back in that day and time, and it's real for us too. And, you know, and there's a number of ways we drift. And, um, and I, I thought David last week did a great job when he laid out the sins. And I think all of us, I think you called them your sins, but I think we all could relate to them. And we could add to that list. And those are the sins that tend to pop up when we just think about following God, the things we're doing wrong. But what about the things God has commanded us to do that we don't do? Kind of like God had commanded the Israelites here to go build his temple. And then we have God's scripture. And think about the things he commands us to do that we don't do. What about praying? We limit prayer, we stop praying when Jesus told the disciples, gave them that parable in Luke 18 to always pray and not give up. Maybe we don't truly trust God in his leading when Proverbs 3, 5 tells us to trust in the Lord with all our heart. Maybe we don't seek out and make disciples even though Jesus, his last words to us were go and make disciples of all nations. His last words on this earth, Matthew 28, 19. Maybe we don't forgive David taught us in Colossians 3.13 says forgive as the Lord forgave you but we don't reconcile with other believers even though Ephesians 4.3 says make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace or maybe we tolerate idols in our life that just throw God off the throne and we put something else as the priority and I could go on and on and on and there may be something completely different for you that God would speak to you about that you need to change but as I was reading through this and just thinking through it, I, I went and pulled an old book off my shelf uh, that many of y'all have read. Um, it's very popular. Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love, written years ago, probably about 15 years. I can't believe how long that's been now. Hadn't read it in a long time and actually read through that in the past week. And um, chapter four of that book, if any of y'all have that, is probably a good self-evaluation tool to go through periodically because he challenges believers, are you lukewarm? And he goes through scripture just powerful. And uh, there's this one paragraph in there that just hit home for me. Um, and I'll just share it with you. It said, because this is what talking about obeying God and what he's asked us to do. It says, lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have their savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. 
They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have them live. They have life figured and mapped out on their own. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerators are full, and for the most part, they are in good health. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Um, tough words there sometimes when you sit there and read that and think, God, consider my ways. Where am I failing you and not doing what you've asked me to do? And God's hand of discipline is probably there if we're dis- disobeying. Maybe there's no joy. Maybe we're, things are just a mess. Maybe we're just pouring ourselves into stuff and the results aren't there. I don't know. But I want to be careful with that point because... All struggles are not due to disobedience, nor does obedience mean you're going to have no struggle. I, don't, I want to be really clear with that. I think it's Adoniram Judson, who was the missionary to Burma. I believe it says when he got to Burma, he tried to go to India, got kicked out of there, had to go to Burma. He ministered for six years without a single convert. And in that six-year period, he lost a son. He and his wife lost a son. Now, I'm sure in that six-year period, that was a struggle. And that was not because of sin. That was because of the struggles of trying to follow God and the perseverance that God was teaching him. And then God used him in a mighty, mighty way there in Burma. So you can't confuse the struggle to persevere with the struggle to due to discipline. But in this case, as it is in Haggai, our disobedience will lead and should lead to God's discipline because God disciplines those he loves. And as I say all this, I know there's the tendency to kind of fall back and say, I feel guilty. Oh, all this stuff I'm not doing. And and that's not the point, because the point is not that you should do this. The real idea is your should should move to the want to do this. From should do this to want to do this. And to get that want to do this comes by your love relationship through Jesus and God. The report is... The point is to just remember, like we talked about earlier, what God has done for us, how God is sovereign, how he controls the who, the when, and the how. And to think about what he did by sending Jesus here on this earth, that great love that he displayed on our behalf. And just to grasp that and pray, God, just show me how to love you more. Help me realize how much you love me. And when you start going down that, I think just naturally... When you realize how much he loves you, you, I hope we would want to say, God, please search my heart. Show me where I'm failing you. It's that love relationship. Search my heart. Show me where I'm failing you. Help me consider my ways because I want to be right before you. Because God requires and he deserves our complete obedience. The last point I want to hit on is number two here. God receives honor in our obedience. God receives honor in our obedience. Look at verse, I'm going to restart in verse 7 there in Haggai chapter 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. Verse 2, the people said, and the time is not right for us to do this. And then God says right here, get up, go do it, bring wood and build the house that I may be glorified. Simply obey. Obey what I've asked you to do. And why? So that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be 
glorified. You see, by leaving that temple unbuilt, the temple was a representation to the Israelites of God's presence among them. Solomon's temple, God lived there. That was his, his home for the Israelites. And when that was destroyed and they come in here and they don't desire to build a new one, it just shows that he was no longer the priority in their life at all. But it says, if you go build that temple, it'll show basically that I'm your priority and I will take pleasure in your sacrifices and I will have glory and honor by your obedience. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. I desire an acknowledgement of God. And you see, when God, we fall in that love relationship with him, and he increases that desire in us to obey him, we want to honor him and do what he tells us to do. And I'll share this example. This is happening here in our church, and I think it's just really cool, and I hope this encourages you. So after one of David's sermons the other week, um, I got into a conversation with, a, with an individual after the service, and they were, it was David had talked about forgiveness. And this individual basically said, you know, as he's talking, God was convicting me about a situation, and I need to, I need to call this person up, and I need to forgive them, and they need to hear that. And, you know, there's been many a times in my life where I have sat here and God has convicted me of stuff and as soon as I went out that door, pew, you know, it disappears or I'm not diligent enough to, to jump on it. And I hate to admit that, but it happens. So me, I'm like, well, I'm going to see if he actually did this. Um, so the next Sunday, uh, he comes back in and he struck, we struck up a conversation and I said, hey, did you, did you reach out? And he said, yeah. He said, I did. Called him up, left a message. They didn't answer the phone. Don't, don't know what they thought about it or anything, but I knew that's what I had to do, and I did it. And I, saw, I thought, just sat there, and I thought, you know how difficult that must have been, but that's what God had called him to do in Scripture, to forgive. And he actually did what God said to do. And I don't know what's going to come of that. Um, that's not for us to worry about, not for him to worry about. But I know through this, I saw God glorified by what he did. And it encouraged me. And that's just one example when we follow what God calls us to do. I mean, it could be anything. Standing firm for the gospel in the workplace. Saying no to your friends when invited to an event that doesn't bring God glory. Or just being kind to that person that drives you bonkers. Um, not blowing the horn at the car in front of you. I don't know, just things you know, that come up. So when we obey God's leading, the point is he's glorified. When we obey God's leading... He is glorified. And, and I tell you, it, it's not easy to sit there and crack open your Bible and say, God, consider my ways. Where am I failing? Where am I failing? Show me. And so I could change that. But when you think about doing that for his glory and his honor, when he sent his son on my behalf just because he loved me, I want to do that. And I can't imagine a better thing to be standing before him one day in heaven and I don't know what he'll say to me, but wouldn't that be neat if he said, Kevin, or James, or Matt, thank you for honoring me. Thank you for honoring me with your life and obeying what I asked you to do. Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. 
God deserves our obedience and receives honor in our obedience. And next week, we're going to see what God does in response to our obedience. It's going to be really, really cool. But before we do that, before we close it down, I want to just give you a little sneak peek here into next week. Look in verse 12 and 13 there in Haggai. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Amen. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. They went from these people in verse 2 to I am with you, verse 13. That bridge was obedience. They obeyed what God had asked them to do. And you know, there's just something beautiful about a restored relationship with our God. Psalm 126, 1 through 3. This, in my mind, is just a beautiful picture of when your relationship is restored to God. And some people, some scholars think this actually does relate to this exile. When they actually came back, it could relate to another period of time for the Israelites. They don't know for sure. But listen to this. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion... We were like men who dreamed. Possibilities galore. Dream. When we dream, oh. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, among the pagan nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Not that they've done great things. The Lord has done great things for them. The people said, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Isn't that a beautiful thing, a restoration with God Almighty? The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. To come full circle on R.A. Torrey's book, when he concluded that paragraph, he quoted Psalm 85.6 that said, Lord, will you not revive us again that your people and your people alone may rejoice in you. Will you not revive us again, not for our benefit, but that your people may rejoice in you? And Lord, increase our love for you, increase all of our love for you, Lord, so that we can rejoice in you and rejoice in you alone. Let's pray. Um, if you don't mind, if you just go ahead and stand as we pray. I know that's a little different, but would you go ahead and stand? And if you need prayer, there'll be people in the back that'll be available to pray for you. But um, Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. And in this small little book buried in the back of our Old Testament, that just such has a powerful reminder for us in our walk with you to consider our ways to constantly be before you and say, God, are we doing what you've called us to do? And Lord, 
I just appreciate that reminder. And so often that's not an easy thing. I don't desire that many a times to try to sit down and go through that because uh, sometimes that's painful. But, but God, we, we individually and as a body, we so desire you and so desire to see you move. And if that is just a, a simple step that we can take so that our lives are pleasing to you and that so that you can accomplish in us and through us what you want to accomplish, Lord, would you just lay us bare before you and show us that. God, I know you will. If we ask that, I know you will. Because we want nothing more than our lives to glorify you individually. We want nothing more than our church to glorify you corporately. And ultimately, we want the world to look at us and our church and give you glory for what you've done. Uh, Thank you for being a loving, sovereign, merciful, forgiving, wonderful God. Thank you, Lord, for what you've taught us this morning. Thank you for your beautiful words. In Jesus' name I pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see.